spoiler alert, it's Geek Top 5! Yay! I'm serious about that, by the way, because we are spoiling stuff today. To get started, there are five cool things happening that affects geeks everywhere. We've ranked them up in order for you. We'll summarize that, get them right to you. Let's just jump right in. No more preamble. Number five, Lord of the Rings. One of my favorite things to talk about. Obviously. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how they're starting to make a new Lord of the Rings television show. And actually, since then, we found out that the budget for this thing is through the roof. They're expecting the series is going to cost in excess of a billion dollars. Not a small amount. A billion with a B. That's $1,000 million. <laughs> um, is there any possible way it can recoup that amount of money? I can't even envision that kind of money. <laughs> a million dollars a thousand times. It's insane. Anyway, we're burying the lead a little bit. That's interesting news, but that's just like make you sad that you're not rich news. Uh, uh, the other piece of news about that is they have a deal where they're guaranteed something like five seasons. So good or bad, we're getting five seasons of Lord of the Rings. Expensive seasons of Lord of the Rings. Yes. So that's fun. What are they going to cover in it? We don't know. Oh, but coincidentally, Christopher Tolkien has just revealed he's releasing another book. Okay, so in my research, I found that, once again, this isn't even the first time this story is being released. It's the first time it's being released in a completed form, but uh, apparently a version of this was released in a, uh, a book of like unfinished stories that Christopher Tolkien put out of his father's work. Yeah, but what he's writing right now is The Fall of Gondolin. Uh, which is covered a little bit in Unfinished Tales, and it's covered a little bit in Silmarillion. Um, it's a first age, like, it, well, yeah, you hear Silmarillion, and it's, if you know any, like, if you know what Silmarillion is, you know where I'm going with this. This is some super deep Lord of the Rings first age stuff. Um, it's not, like, I don't want to sound like it's bad, I actually really like it. But it's interesting because Chris Tolkien's last book was the, the compilation of a bunch of notes for Baron and Luthien, and it was very, very clear that this was like his last project. Mm-hmm. You know, this was just like the, the, the final remnants of stuff of his father's notes that he's finally put together into this thing. It wasn't even really a complete story. It was more like the story of the story. Hmm. It's like, like, here's a bunch of different drafts that my dad wrote, and here are some interesting characters who don't show up. And I've got a weird thing with that, right? Because I have that Star Wars, like, like I can't accept reading different drafts because that's not how it really happened. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In the real world. Yeah, like, you don't care about Luke Starkiller. Exactly. Uh, Bendak Starkiller, though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Anyway, uh, it was super clear that that was the last book, and now he's suddenly magically found more stuff, I guess, and he's releasing the fall. Listen, you said... Say magically, this is his life's work, is his father's work. work. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anyone's going to find it, it's going to be this guy. And he just happened to find more at the age of 93. Just, That's not his father's age. That is his age. His age. He just happened to find more, and he's going to write another book just coincidentally while the television show is around the corner. You sound cynical, Jesse. A little bit. You know what? I find that shocking. I mean, just picture me up there with, like, the stuff on the wall and the red yarn from point to point. <laughs> It seems a little suspicious to me. Now, that being said, it's a good story. It's got all the classic stuff, like good and evil and a love story and men and, and, men and elves and the whole shebang. Uh, you'll kill me if I go into the whole thing on the show, right? Like, Well, I, I don't think we need an entire plot summary. My my understanding is that it's one of the first things chronologically that uh, J.R.R. wrote about this universe. Yeah, after, just... the, after the Battle of the Sun. In right, World War I, right, yeah. which tells you how long... Not, uh, not fun. Oh, yeah, and yes, how long ago was World War I? Uh, he fought in it, and it ended 100 years ago. Yeah. So this is old. Old stuff. Yeah. 
Um, apparently, they just happened to find. I'm sorry. I know I'm harping on this point. <laughs> so, uh, is it uh, is it a good? I mean, what have you read of it? Like, what? Is okay, it yeah. In the so, unfinished it, in the fiction, so got in the in in the first age, so in like the biblical era of Lord of the Rings, um, Gondolin is the hidden kingdom. It's like it. It's what, like, it turns out to be like the last bastion of the good guys in Middle Earth versus Morgoth. Um, it gets discovered by a man, by, by which I mean, like, you know, by a human, not an elf. This guy Tuor, who throw, throws everything like it's been just a hidden kingdom of elves for so long, and then this man appears and throws everything into disarray, and he falls in love with an elf, with Idril, um, and Tuor and Idril is a thing. If you're, if you're into the Lord of the Rings fiction, like the history of the like men and elves that are marrying, there's only three. Like Aragorn and Arwen were the last. Before them was Tuor and Idril, and before that was Baron and Luthien. Hmm. So you're like. Anyway. Is it always a man and a woman? Yeah. yeah well, that, that's another thing about writing things in the early 1900s. Um, J.R. Tolkien's uh, female characters don't have a ton of agency. Uh, I'm sure that will be revised for the television show. I should make it clear. Uh, I meant um, man, man, and a woman elf. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's fair. It's confusing. <laughs> Um, there's a whole, like, star-crossed lovers thing there, and there's, like, the jealous guy, because there's Maeglin, the dark elf, who Idril doesn't want to be with him, even though he wants to be with her because he's a bad guy, and also her cousin, which kind of weird. 1900s, uh, everybody. No, even then, in, in the story, like, she points, like, that's kind of weird, that, okay. like, we're, we're cousins, we probably <laughs> shouldn't get married for lots of reasons, but that's one of them. Um, the location of the kingdom is betrayed, Morgoth invades, there's a big battle, there's Balrogs and monsters, Tuor fights Maeglin, obviously, Tuor and Idril run off, and their son becomes Erendil, the mariner, who's like the hero of the First Age. Okay. So there's plenty of stuff for them to work with, and it's all grandiose and epic in that big fantasy faction. So it sounds like it could be a phenomenal television show. Mm. I just feel like... How much of these suddenly discovered notes are actually, you know, how, like how valid is this? Okay, so let's get to the nitty gritty here. You, you were talking about uh, Baron and Luthien, and you seemed uh, somewhat unimpressed by it. You did you read it? Oh yeah, yeah, I read it. It's like the, sto- you... the story of Baron and Luthien is in the Silmarillion. Christopher Tolkien's Baron and Luthien, the hardcover that you can buy, is like a collection of drafts and notes and like him talking about how J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Baron and Luthien. So it's it's like it's a documentary in a book. It's, so do you recommend it? Eh. Now, I don't think it adds anything that anybody really needs to know. Knowing that... How do you feel about this new thing, the the uh, fall of Gondolin? Will you buy it? Well, I mean, I don't know if I've been too coy <laughs> with my feelings about this so far, but I feel like the fall of Gondolin is going to be a fairly original story designed to set up the television show. So, honestly, yeah, I'm going to buy it, because <laughs> that sounds great. And I love that world, and I love that place, and I want to be there. Um, I'm just feeling a little cynical about the origin of that story. But hey, you know what? Like, like I said... It, it sounds like a hair-raising good time, and I can't wait to see more. All right. Sounds good. That's Check, a, coming out in August. Coming out in August. Wow. That that's, seems like really soon, too, doesn't it? <laughs> that's, that's also weird. What, a weird. what a weird coincidence. But yeah, again, we're going to be here for a while. Let's move on. Number four on the list, uh, somewhat more modern fantasy. Not that much of a difference, I guess, but Dungeons & Dragons, closer to current day than Battle of the Sun. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> Dungeons & Dragons, already cool. 
Tell me if this isn't a list of things that we on this show love. So, Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. It's going to be in a comic book. Yes. It's going to be a crossover with Rick and Morty, the Adult Swim television show. I'm on board. It's going to be written by Jim Zub. Friend of the, the show. show. <laughs> and he's working with Patrick Rothfuss. Who? Who is an award-winning fantasy author from the, King, the Kingslayer Chronicles. Ah. Uh, name of the Wind. Kvoth. Kvoth. K-V-O-T-H-E is the name of his main character. Ah, the Klingon. Just, man, thank God they're making a television show of it so we can finally figure out how it's pronounced. <laughs> anyway, that is a, just a gosh darn stew of everything I love to eat. <laughs> also, wow. art by Troy Little, another uh, Jim Zub, our, our Canadian brethren up here. Troy Little from PEI. It's a, two-thirds of the creative team are Canadian. That's pretty cool. And the other third is Patrick Rothfuss. I mean, you can't say no. Honorary Canadian. Okay, so how do we hit this one? So Dungeons & Dragons we've talked about. It's a game. It's a role-playing game. You don't look, Why are you listening to the show? You don't know what Dungeons & Dragons is. We had an episode about it. Moving on. So they're crossing over with Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is a fairly recent show, uh, premiered in October of 2013, um, Adult Swim. It's one of those like cartoons, but meant for adults. Created by Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland. Yeah, they were also behind... Well, Dan Harmon was behind Community. Uh, Justin the... Roiland... Uh, has... Community was the one I was getting at. Okay. But yeah, so you understand the sense of humor it's going for. But it's essentially... It's, it started off as sort of a parody of the Doc Brown and Marty relationship from Back to the Future. So a weird old man and, like, the, the little kid. Um, and then they turned it into this very, very dark, very nihilistic, life is meaningless and it doesn't mean, and everything is terrible kind of thing. It's a very dark humor. It is a very funny show, but it's not for everybody. Um, fan base is a little weird. Um, if you read anything yeah. in the news about a bunch of people attacking McDonald's's for Szechuan sauce, those are those are way too big Rick and Morty fans. Yeah, if you think a stereotypical D&D fan is a little weird, uh, pair them with a Rick and Morty fan and you're off the charts. Yeah, so yeah, weird turns up to 11. But Rick and Morty has a lot of, like, they're, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an American family, but it's a sci-fi kind of thing. They're constantly traveling to alternate universes and alternate timelines, completely within the realm of believability for those characters that they'd end up in a Dungeons and Dragons kind of universe. So it fits. Well, it's also uh, something I found interesting was that they've established within the canon that the comic book versions of Rick and Morty are a separate universe from the TV show version. So, so you know, I find a lot of times when you watch a com or read a comic book uh, version of a TV show or something, it feels kind of hollow because everything has to revert to status quo by the end. That's not necessarily the case here because... There's a, a well-established multiverse within the Rick and Morty cartoon, and this is just part of that multiverse. So they can do things that are a bit more outside the book than most uh, not spinoffs. Yeah, essentially they can do whatever they want yeah. because there's no consequences. And that's also a big theme of the show is that there are no consequences because there's infinite universes. So you screw one up, doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which that leads to some funny episodes. And dark episodes. And dark episodes. It's a, don't, I, I don't want to sound like I'm knocking it too much. I do really like it. <laughs> there's nothing it's, wrong with dark. Yeah. Uh, now, so that's what's happening. It's awesome. It's even more awesome. Let's focus in a little bit. So Jim Zub, friend of the show, he's writing Avengers. He's written Dungeons & Dragons in the past. He's got that sense of humor. I, I mean, we're, we're kissing his butt at this point. He's been on the a show bit. a couple times. Yeah. Is, there, is there anything else we can... Hopefully we'll get him again to talk about this. Let's see what we can do. Yeah. Now, Patrick Rothfuss is interesting. He's got two novels of a, of a trilogy, of course, because he's a fantasy author, and God forbid they ever finish anything. <laughs> um, but he's a big guy. It's uh, The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear. That's 2007 and 2011. 
the King Killer Chronicle. I think I said King Slayer earlier because of Game of Thrones, but it's King Killer Chronicle. Um, it's winning all these awards, and he's got this like like he's sort of an up and comer, right? Like if he wrote a little bit more prolifically and it started a little earlier, he could have been George R. R. Martin. Mm. Um, he's very popular in the online community because he does a lot of stuff with D and D. He plays D&D on a number of podcasts, including the Penny Arcade one, the Acquisitions Incorporated, which means that, like, they're living in some alternate fantasy land I can't even picture, because they play D&D live in front of, like, thousands of people. <laughs> like, tens of thousands of people wow. come and pay money to watch these guys play D&D. He's a regular part of the crew there. He plays Viari. It's funny. He's constantly flinging himself from chandeliers for some reason. Um, what we're getting at is that he's a cool, like, up-to-date modern guy, and he's got his D&D cred established. So him writing this, like, in a funny D&D universe, like, that, that, is, that is some primo casting. Now, part of the uh, sort of problem with this, and I think a, a popular response to this news was... Why are you doing this? You have a novel to write. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it's 2011, like I said, was his last one. But, again, George R. R. Martin, right? It, it's hard to write fantasy, apparently. Well, and <laughs> my my perspective on this is that the author doesn't necessarily owe you anything, right? No, of course he doesn't. So, but, but we want to get... I know, and I think that's admirable, but I also don't think you should begrudge this man his success in being able to indulge in these amazing things that we all wish we could also indulge in. Yeah, no, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. Like, that's I, I just can... wish what he wanted to do was finish. <laughs> just kill the king already. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I also, have, my understanding is that they will go pretty deep into the back catalog of D&D. Like, they are not going to be skimping on details here. Like, they're going to be going through multiple editions. It is going to, to sate your D&D lust. I think we have a release date. It's uh, sometime in August. Sometime in August. August is going to be a good month this year. Um, we'll see what we can do about getting a little more detail from the inside source. Wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. See what we can uh, let you guys know. Uh, looking forward to that one. Number three, not fantasy. Whew, break. <laughs> so Star Trek Discovery ended on a, well, not quite controversial note. but Well, it it's... I think to most people it wasn't controversial. I think to most people it was exciting. A little pandering. Sure. To, I don't know, hypercritical jerks like us, it was pandering and worrying. Yeah. But, but to ever, normal people, yeah, they it loved was it. exciting. And I don't begrudge that whatsoever. So the discoveries met the Enterprise. Yes. Yeah. It, that, we're not going to go into what the... It's the Enterprise. <laughs> now, the big question about that is the main character of Discovery, Michael Burnham, has been written in as an adopted sibling of Spock. It's just been a little awkward to fit into the canon, but okay, great. But now we're at a point where it seems like she might actually meet Spock, which raises a lot of questions. Why hasn't Spock, like, ever mentioned her before? And yes, we know it's because she hadn't been invented. But... How is that going to work? And they finally announced, yes, Spock is going to be in the next season of Star Trek Discovery. Now, before we go on, I have to say, you say announced, but I have a feeling... Well, the the way this got out was Jonathan Frakes said it at a panel. I have a feeling he probably wasn't supposed to say uh, it. See, I had a feeling that he was instructed to say it. This is the difference between you and me. <laughs> I think... I, I love Jonathan Frakes, but I have a feeling he's reaching an age where he is starting to not care so much about what he's supposed to say and what he isn't supposed to say. Yeah. He's always been a bit of a fly-by-your-seat kind of guy, I think. So I think he's just like, ah, the fans want to know this. I gotta tell them whatever I want. He let slip that the Mirror Universe was going to 
factor into the first season, and I think that was supposed to be a big surprise. And I this is my my hunch. I have nothing to really back this up, but I don't think the Discovery people were necessarily thrilled with him leaking that Mirror Universe was going to be in it. See, identically, I think the exact opposite. (laughs) I think the marketing guys said, hey, we're not trending as high on Twitter as we want to be. We're going to pass these guys a bone. Here, wouldn't you, you say this? I think you see far more deviousness in their hands than I do. I think you were far too naive, but (laughs) that's why we work so well together. In any case, Spock, yes, he's going to be there, but kind of a gotcha, because he's not actually there there. He's just there in flashbacks as a kid. And again, Frakes is only directing episode 2 and 10, I think, so he probably only knows about episode 2 so far. So this is just what Frakes has said. What Frakes has said is that Spock is going to be in the show and it's going to be a kid. That's what Frakes knows. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what's going to happen. We could still see an adult Spock. You're I'm trying saying, so hard. I'm not trying anything. I'm just saying we don't know 100%. That's what's in the news. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Which is essentially that Patton Oswalt bit, right? Like, you like Spock? Yeah. We get to see him as a little kid. And we already have seen him as a little kid in an animated series episode, which, you know, a lot of those uh, animated series episodes, their, their place in the canon has been debated for years. But right. I'm pretty sure that one is fairly firmly established as, as part of yeah. the canon. And, and in the J.J. movie, in the first one, we That's see true. young Spock. He's yeah. Getting, doesn't matter. And he's mad in, uh, in, in the animated episode as well. I watched it as a refresher recently and it wasn't bad it was a rough childhood sure um what what i'm reporting on here is does anybody really care about kids bach really no 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 i don't care what could it possibly add to anything i mean i guess it will help establish the fact that michael burnham was really there but even then like we never we never met young spock before so who cares maybe he'll be a jerk to her and and or resent her and that's why he won't mention her ever but that seems like a really petty thing for him to carry on to logical adulthood maybe they'll like give him to like captain antilles will have his memory wiped you know there's that yeah uh it's it's what i'm saying is why why I just I, I I can't imagine what it could possibly add, especially now that we're going into the show's second season. It's like I think the the character setup is done, especially yeah. since we spent so much time with Michael Burnham, and it was so it, it just led to so many problems for the hardcore fans. How they kept shrugging away continuity. Why double down on the continuity? Clearly, continuity is not your strong point. So just. Move on. Get yeah. away from continuity. Create your own stuff and let the continuity deal with itself. Ah. Yeah, Star Trek fans are good at that. <laughs> yeah. They'll figure it out. Between, like, you know, the, the Guardian on the Edge of Forever and yeah. Sid, Gar- City on the Edge of Forever. Guardian on the City of the Edge of Forever. Jeez, complex. Between that and time travel and, like, all that. And this person. shot around the sun. Yeah, there you go. Tasha Yar's universe. <laughs> We can do it. The other bit of news is uh, that Captain Pike has been cast. Captain Pike is the captain of the uh, Enterprise at this point, and uh, he'll be played by Anson Mount, who is probably best known more most recently for playing Black Bolt on the short-lived Inhumans TV series, and he also was in Hell on Wheels, a uh, train-based Western show on AMC that had sort of yeah. lasted like three seasons, I think. Help, help me with it. So Black Bolt is the bad one and Black Lightning is the good one? Like That's the one no, that people are watching? Oh, oh yes. They're, they're both good guys, but yes, Black Lightning is the good show okay, and yeah. then Humans is the bad show. 
Black Bolt is the inhuman leader. He's a king, but he can't speak because any sound he makes it reverberates and destroys stuff. Right, right, right. Okay, and Black Lightning is the, okay. Well, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. He's a black guy. He shoots lightning. Yeah, yeah. No, it's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, it's it's on point. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, young Spock coming to Star Trek Discovery. Maybe there'll be an adult Spock. We don't know. Maybe Jonathan Frakes is crazy. Who knows? I <laughs> crazy like a fox. Right. That's yeah. it. Is he crazy like First Contact, or is he crazy like Insurrection? Yeah, crazy like the Thunderbirds movie. Yeah, we'll find out when Star Trek Discovery comes back. Number two on the list. Uh, this is fun. It was announced that Margot Robbie is... Robbie? Robbie? Margo, Let's go with both. Margot R. is going to be reprising her role as popular Halloween costume Harley Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> From David Ayer's Suicide Squad movie. Um, one of many Harley Quinn projects that they want to work on, because apparently Harley Quinn was the only good thing to come out of Suicide Squad. I mean, um, is that even debatable? I, I, but is she, was she, was, was she, I mean, hmm, fine, she performed as a crazy, I just, I don't understand, how did Harley Quinn become like an icon for like the strong woman when the defining trait of her character is her being the bottom in an abusive relationship with the Joker? I don't know. It's a very difficult question. At some point in the comics, she breaks free of that relationship and enters a relationship with Poison Ivy. But it didn't happen in the Suicide Squad movie, right? No. But the... ah. Ugh, that's a whole dissertation. Yeah. I could write a PhD thesis about the, this character. Yeah, I won't, but I could. Right. So, she's coming back. She's going to be the star, the lead, I guess, of Birds of Prey, uh, which was a television series. Very short-lived. Very, 13 episodes. Yeah. Wasn't very good. It came out a little too early. It could have been like the birth of the Arrowverse that uh, Arrow and Flash and Supergirl are a part of. But it came out a little early and didn't have the staying power and died a quick death. Yeah. So, in the comics... Birds of Prey, it's, so it's Oracle, who was Batgirl, but now she's in the wheelchair, so now she's like Intel instead. Yeah. And Huntress. And, and Black Canary. And Black Canary. Those are the typical main characters and for Birds of Prey. And they're superhero women who kick butt. Yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be a movie kind of about that, but also with Harley Quinn. And possibly no Oracle, and probably no Black Canary. Yeah. Hmm. So that's an interesting choice. Um, I guess because people want to see Harley Quinn again, um, who was a bad guy in the Birds of Prey television show, uh, but now she's going to be leading them, I guess? Yeah, it's all very confusing. We we don't know a ton of details. Even the fact that it's Birds of Prey is sort of speculated on. It's I think the announcement said more like a Harley Quinn girl gang movie, but Birds of Prey would be a good title for it, so maybe they're using that in the same way that the Guardians of the Galaxy movie isn't all that similar to the original Guardians of the Galaxy comic book. That's fair. Um, so, anyway, we will we'll see what happens with that. There's also talk of a uh, Joker Harley Quinn movie uh, being in the works, as well as a second Suicide Squad movie. What we know is that Kathy Yan is uh, the director. She hasn't really put out anything big, but that seems to be the standard these days. Directors put out one indie movie that gets some sort of buzz, and then they get a big... Uh, shot at the uh, superhero tentpole movie. And, you know, it's going to be another woman making another female-centric DC movie that worked out really well for Wonder Woman. Seems like it was a really good idea. So, I think we're, you know, we're behind that. That yeah. works. And apparently that was one of the things Margot Robbie is a, a producer on this movie, and she insisted, apparently, on it being a woman director. Okay, that's fair, given what they want to work with. Yeah. I, I, I still, I mean, I know, I know I'm obsessing, but really, a Harley, how does Harley Quinn carry her own movie? I, I, all right, all right. It's, uh, people seem to like it, I guess. Look, I, I would have, 
had a hard time picturing a Deadpool movie working as well as it did, and here we are. So we'll see. Yeah, that's fair. Um, to be fair, like, like you mentioned, Harley Quinn in the comics, a much deeper character, a lot more going for her. So there's room to explore that, I suppose. Is it possible to do that without Jared Leto's Joker? Hard to say. And I guess they could recast Jared Leto. It's true, and I, I also think her her growth, which would probably be the more interesting part of the story, happens after the Joker is out of the picture. So maybe in this case it would be better just to to talk about him but not see him. And then maybe do a movie where they're partners and see the abusive side of the relationship and maybe... So I think... It, a Birds of Prey movie or a Harley Quinn Girl Gang movie might be a more healthy way to examine that character because she's free of Joker at that point. So if you have her uh, in that role, you get to see her grow away from that abusive relationship. And then maybe later on do a movie about the relationship and show how toxic it is so that it can be, that the romance can be taken out of it a bit. Because there's a lot of stuff on the internet that idolizes that relationship and it's yeah. really unhealthy and shouldn't be something that should be aspired to. Yeah, we've seen, we went to, we went to the cons to do some stuff for the show. We saw a lot of like couples as the Joker and Harley Quinn and like he's actually got her on a chain and stuff. It's like, yeah. wow, how. I mean, like, if you're consenting and you're into that, that's one thing, but it's a... It's a eh, th- there's a reason why, like, you know, the whole thing with the Slave Leia outfit, I feel yeah. like this is kind of similar. Um, but apparently the impression is that, you know, well, what, Suicide Squad won an, like, an Emmy for the music or something? An Emmy, an Oscar for the music? Or the special effects, somebody or something like that. Yeah. So th- that came out of it, and Harley Quinn came out of it. I still think she works best as a Halloween costume. Now here, I've got a perfect segue to our next topic. Harley Quinn never in the comics was really part of the Birds of Prey. You know who was, though? Lady Blackhawk. Which brings us to our number one. Wow, so we talked about Black Bolt, we talked about Black Lightning, and now there's Blackhawk. Another superhero. Okay. <laughs> Not really a superhero, but go Sort of. Alright, so it's a comic book hero. Um, why is it in the news? Because Steven Spielberg is making a movie about it. So that's probably going to be good. I hear he's made a couple good movies. But help me out here. I mean, I'm having so much trouble keeping track of all these comic book characters. Anyway, what's Blackhawk? So, uh, I'll be honest. Since he's not a superhero, or since they aren't superheroes, they have never been very high on my radar. Mm. But I did my research. They were uh, created for quality comics by Chuck Quidera in 1941. Uh, They are like Captain America. They started fighting in uh, World War II before America actually did in, in real life. They're a group of pilots who are all come from different allied nations to uh, to fight the Nazis, and they, they work together. It's a, a diverse group, which is, is great for modern audiences and a, a modern movie. Um, at the time, their Chinese representative was a horrific caricature, and that's probably why... They've been brought up in more recent years, uh, usually on those internet lists of like the most racist things in comic books. Mm. So they they need a good rehabilitation. And to be fair, that character was rehabilitated a lot through the 60s and 80s. Um, but still, they haven't had much going on in the last, I don't know, half a century. Right. Really. It's, what do you do with a group of World War II pilots after World War II ends? Yeah, they've uh. tried to reboot them a number of times and they never quite stick because... They're World War II pilots, and you got to stick to that up to a certain point. But, you know, for a movie, like, yeah, you could set it in World War II, and that yeah. actually that suits Spielberg pretty well, right? Give it sort of a pulpy kind of Indiana Jones kind of feel. I did the count, and uh, this is just movies he's directed. And this is, again, just movies he's actually directed. 
He's done six World War II movies. I can go through the list if you want. I, I believe you. Okay. Yeah. No, it definitely seems to be in his wheelhouse. I, I, it makes sense, I guess, that they're not superheroes. It doesn't seem to be his thing. But but a cool period piece, action-adventure, and then, you know, with some dogfighting. Yeah. And that's one of the areas that uh, he hasn't really covered in any of his World War II movies is the air battles. So it's it's fertile territory for him. Which, how could you not? Because that's the coolest part. I, I mean, I guess it was harder to do up until now. Yeah, I suppose. But like Crimson Skies, you know, the... <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is an obscure reference these days. Well, maybe. What can I say? I'm an obscure kind of guy. Um, Crimson Sky's uh, alternate universe video game about uh, fighter pilots. Very good. Yeah. In any case, so Blackhawk, they've... Uh, so yeah, they did their best work during World War II, so to speak. Uh, but since then, they've had their usual run. Like, they have a super... Like, almost a supervillain rogues gallery, right? I picked some, some, of the, some of the best names. I liked King Condor and Killer Shark. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely didn't seem to know what to do with them. I guess the question is, why now? Why bring them back? Um, maybe just because... I, here's why. Because Steven Spielberg wants to. Well, okay, that's fair. And that's it's interesting, because people have talked about... Steven Spielberg apparently has been interested in doing this since the 80s. Or at least there's been that buzz. Yeah, apparently they... So there was a reboot of the, the comic book in the 80s, apparently off of the buzz that Steven Spielberg wanted to do a Blackhawks movie. And they were like, well, Steven Spielberg wants to do a movie. We better start this comic book up again. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing I found was that this, uh, the, this was one of the highest-selling comics of the 40s. And so much so that they had a radio show and even a movie serial in the 50s. And the lead Blackhawk, whose name was Blackhawk, was mm. uh, played by Kirk Allen, who... In most history uh, textbooks, if you will, on cinema, gets an asterisk next to his name because he was the first cinematic Superman. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. Two top-notch superheroes under his belt. Okay. Yeah, you've I'm never heard of them. Yeah, well, what can I say? <laughs> um, so Blackhawk, coming from Steven Spielberg. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg, so of course everyone's going to see it's going to make a ton of money. But cool World War II. Well, we don't know if he's setting it in World War II, but we can pretty safely assume. Presumably. Presumably World War II, cool action-adventure, pulpy period piece, and maybe crossing over with some DC stuff, because it is a DC property, so... Now, that's, that's interesting, though. Do they like? Do they do the like the last ten minutes of the movie where it fades to modern day and there's Black Hawk working with the Justice League, or do they have a 1940s Superman? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so cool, right? I kind of like that one. Uh, now, to be fair, uh, he's only attached as a producer right now, but everyone that I've read who've talked about this are saying they they really hope he directs, and it sounds like he's leaning in that direction. But you never know. You never know. In any case, whatever happens with it, it's bound to be a cool movie, regardless of whether it's awesome or not. It's a great idea, and cool characters to reinvent, and could be fun to share with that comic book world. We'll see. It's Steven Spielberg. How can you go wrong? That was the news for this uh, these couple of weeks. I will be right back with our special guest segment, so please stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome to the second half of Geek Top 5. This week, we have Aisha with us, and she has brought us uh, the top five Prime Directive violations. Now, Aisha, I'm not a big Star Trek fan. (laughs) (laughs) This is the card we're going to (laughs) play? Can you explain what the Prime Directive is? Well, I'd be pleased to. So, uh, there's a few definitions of the Prime Directive we get, but the basic definition we get from Bread and Circuses in the original series, and the words are... No identification of self or mission, no interference with social development of said planet, no references to space or the fact that there are other worlds or civilizations. So this is sort of 
the basics that we start with in the original series, and then later on they get they add. I think what by the time Voyager happens, forty seven suborders and exceptions and all these different situations. Like any good law, there's a, right. addendums and complications. <laughs> exactly. But essentially, if you're flying around the galaxy and you meet someone who isn't advanced to fly their own ship and shoot you, you don't let them know that there are like there's space stuff. Right. The simplest definition is it's non interference. Non-interference with the, I guess, the organic development of a civilization by, like, blowing their minds and saying, by the way, everything you think is wrong, and they're just a planet among thousands, and yeah, they can't do that stuff. (laughs) It is apparently, quote, a starship captain's most solemn oath that he will give his life, even his entire crew, rather than violate the prime directive. So, this must have been a really hard list for you to put together. (laughs) Because obviously no one would violate the Prime Directive, <laughs> oh, right? never, never. Especially, uh, I think the numbers we were discussing earlier were uh, Captain Kirk has 11. Uh, and I think in terms of percentage to episode numbers, he probably wins by a lot from all of the right. captains. I mean, it depends on... Oh, I, I think Archer gets a pass. Well, it didn't exist. It didn't yet. exist. It didn't yeah. exist. Right. Uh, but I think Voyager's whole existence is a prime directive violation. Is a kind of a self-preservation exception, maybe? I don't know. But it's That's supposed to give, to your, give life. your life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But made a really short show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably for the best. In any case, there are five specific ones that you've picked out. That's right. Let's hit it. What's number five? Number five from the original series, we've got Return of Archons. This is season one, episode 22, aired in 1967. All right, so this episode is of the first time we hear about the Prime Directive, as it gets explained by Spock. Kind of ironically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what we're doing is on a planet called Beta 3. Um, Sulu and O'Neill come back from an away mission, um, and they're acting really weird. They're just like being really stoic and sort of brainwashed. They're being these silly drones, and everyone on the Enterprise gets freaked out by what, what's going on with these guys. So, an, an away mission lands on the planet. They discover this strange society where these people are just these mindless drones. They're very polite. They're all, like, dressed in these Victorian garb for some reason. And they keep asking them, you know, oh, you're acting kind of strange. Are you of the body? Are you of the body? Um, and it's really fun and creepy. Eventually, they get, uh, they meet these different characters who are from the planet. And they get confronted by these creepy robed figures who are servants of Landru. We find out Landru is this... Um, such an original series. Such an original series. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Landru is this, um, I guess, this overlord figure on this planet who's been ruling this place for 6,000 years with these uh, you know, guidelines, and everybody is, uh, is a servant of Landru. What you find out by the end of the episode is that Landru is... Uh, he died 6,000 years ago, um, and he is now a computer, big computer that is basically just handing down... Uh, commandments One of to this, the, the society. Many episodes where Captain Kirk has to fight a computer in one form or another. Right, exactly. Usually by shouting at it. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and this is, and that is really the culmination of this episode, is that Kirk convinces this computer to terminate itself because it has become the evil that it was designed to uh, prevent. Eliminating <laughs> 6,000 years of an established way that this planet lives... And go ahead and like, this will probably be fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
there is a really great scene where uh, where Landrew the computer um, uses some kind of mass telepathy to get all of these uh, uh, these servants to attack our crew. Um, and there's this great scene where they're just sort of doing this slow, deliberate march towards the crew, holding these weapons. It's very zombie-like. It's very strange, but I like it a lot with the, with the creepy Victorian gloats. But as the episode ends, you have uh, these loophole that that Kirk uses, and it's really kind <laughs> yeah. of a silly loophole. But I liked it as sort of legalese. But they're like, okay, so yeah, we are kind of violating the Prime Directive, but it really only applies to living, growing cultures. It's not which I know. <laughs> they're like, well, these people are just drones. There's no creativity. They're not thinking for themselves. So, yeah, that doesn't count as, like, a growing civilization so we can mess this up as much as we want. <laughs> the thing I found so frustrating watching it, and this is this is after, I mean, that episode is in the first season. So it was, like, the yeah. first time this has ever been addressed. And there's this guy in the away team party named Lindstrom who, you know, he's one of these randoms from the, the Enterprise crew who shows up now and then. He's, like, a sociologist who gets to join the away party for some reason. And he's... Violating the Prime Directive left and right. Like, he he's, he berates this man for letting bad stuff happen to his daughter. And it's like, it's none of your business. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. This is how this society works. Yeah, that whole thing with festival, by the way, never actually gets explained. Never gets no. explained. They're just, I was like, uh, when I was watching it, I was thinking, is this some sort of purge thing where you get to be it looks crazy like and it. violent for one hour a day just to get it out of your system? Um, but then you have to go back to being a drone for Landru, mm. I guess. <laughs> that never really gets explained. Either. No, it never and, comes up again. And it never really explained why they go into this. They go the Enterprise crew. They're trying to escape that violence. So they go into a building. and There's like three guys hanging out there <laughs> who aren't affected by this for some reason. That's again never addressed. Never addressed. But they do get in trouble because they didn't participate in festivals. So, but then watching, I was thinking, well, neither did these guys. Why aren't they in any <laughs> yeah. trouble? Yeah. Doesn't matter now because Kirk shouts at Landru until it explodes, and they leave. I think they leave Lindstrom behind yeah, to like right. essentially be the new king of this planet. And that was my biggest problem with this episode. Like, okay, so we're just going to raise the civilization and everything they've known for six thousand years to the ground. We're going to leave a couple of guys just to like rebuild some culture and stuff and get like, this- teach them capitalism. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say I had mixed feelings about it. Okay, because on the one hand, if they had just come in and totally wiped out what their society was for the last 6,000 years and then buggered off, that's almost as bad as as leaving someone there to help guide them. You know, I, I don't know which would have been better. On the one hand, yes, it would have maybe gone a more natural evolution from that point, but they would have they would have nothing. It would probably be a greater collapse and then maybe a rebirth if they re- were reborn at all. Right. But it's hard to make that seem not self-serving. You know, like this is the like this is the circles argument about the Federation over Bajor. It's like, sure, you come in and teach us how to behave exactly like you and right. do things exactly your way and then join your alliance. Right. And like you know, like like yeah, it's it's it felt it felt like grooming to me. We'd be like, "Oh, you'll be great, you know, Federation citizens." Grooming is by a the good way to put done. it. Yeah, it's so creepy. You don't call it grooming. That's exactly what it is, though. Like they just Kirk decides, like, well, this isn't the way people are meant to live. Totally yeah. on his own. Yeah, and, like, changes the future of this entire planet. To be fair, that is 
totally Kirk, though. It totally fits his character, yes, but sure. it does violate every Kirk, sort of prime directive. Kirk arguing with a computer and convincing it to blow itself up is peak Kirk to me. <laughs> well, he does it like six times. <laughs> that's, that's he does it with Landru, he does it with Vol, he does it with Mud's android yeah. wives. Ugh, they do it over that. and over again. Yes, he's just this tricking computers is like his, uh, that's his special power. <laughs> this is the first we see of it, I think, so yes. Alright, so that was number five. Anyway, so yeah, that's so that one, we introduce the Prime Directive and we blow it up immediately. Yes. So that's fun. <laughs> what's, uh, what's number four? What's on the... Number four, we are jumping to TNG, and this is Who Watches the Watchers? Season three, episode four, aired 1989. Classic episode. Great yes. episode. Um, Great episode. So we're on Mintaka 3, um, and it's being has been studied in secret by an observation post. They're sort of Bronze Age level Vulcan cousins. And uh, this post is hidden behind a holographic wall. An explosion causes the wall to disappear temporarily, and these two Mintakans see inside. And one of them gets hurt during this process from the explosion. Um, Dr. Crusher beams them up. Um, and this person now sees Picard sort of is being mind-wiped, which we'll get to because I hate that concept. Yeah. Um, but in his sort of stupor, he sees Picard talking in uh, it, while he's being treated uh, and decides that that is God. Uh, and comes back to the planet uh, and starts spreading the word of the Picard to, <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. which is awesome, uh, to all of the locals. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Troy and Riker go down um, and must find out one of the post doctors that's gone missing. Um, and so they're doing this in disguise, dressed up as these people. Um, and uh, Picard is specifically telling them that you know you have to make sure that you're not contaminating this culture. Unbeknownst to him, he's already like a yeah, local he's god. Already, yeah. He doesn't even know any of this stuff yet. They got like Picard tapestries, <laughs> you know, Picard t-shirts. <laughs> and of course you have the town skeptic who's going like, no, we know. we." It's What I liked about the society is that they're at a level where they've gone past sort of religious beliefs. And that's why the Federation started paying attention to them. Where they're like, oh, okay. They're getting a little secular. They're getting uh, technological. We'll pay attention to them because, uh, you know, maybe in a couple hundred years they might be ready for first contact. Great. Um, so this uh, encounter actually sort of sets them back a little bit yeah. where they decide that, oh, okay, these, these advanced beings are our gods and they're the ones who are, uh, you know, uh, managing our lives for us. And they sort of intellectually take a step back. <laughs> so I thought that was real ironic. It's very Star Trek, very Roddenberry, very. like Roddenberry was always about, oh, by this point in the future, religion will have been completely forgotten and, and discarded. And, and this is like, oh, they're going backwards by accepting exactly. religion. <laughs> yeah, it, it wears its heart in its sleeve. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, eventually, the town skeptic gets a beamed aboard the Enterprise to explain, and it's explained to her that they're not gods. We're just from the future. We're mortals. Uh, we're not from the future, sorry. We're just a very advanced society, and we're mortals, and we can still die, and... Um, you know, this could be you in several thousand years. <laughs> Eventually, it has to be where Troy and um, Riker are captured. Uh, Troy is about to be sacrificed by the the townsfolk who've been out because they go straight to sacrifice. They go straight to humans or Vulcan sacrifice. There's a storm. They decide that oh, the Picard is angry. Let's kill the new lady, and so <laughs> yeah. they're going to sacrifice her. Poor Troy. Picard uh, Picard has to go down and basically has to get shot by an arrow and, <laughs> and show them that he's mortal and he can bleed and uh, that fixes the situation somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's the episode. So it's like. It's an interesting way to examine the Prime Directive. Because it was an accident. They saw the thing. Right. But then Picard says, well, 
let's just take her up to the ship and reveal everything. <laughs> right. That'll make it better. Right. And you know, and, <laughs> like, and, and what? I, went, I went over this in my head where I'm like, you're in this huge mess. And really, what else is the solution at this point than just going clean altogether and saying, you know what? <laughs> I mean, that, that's where I re- sort of respect, wow. Not the only way, but in many ways, one of the many ways I respect Picard more than Kirk is that he actually wrestles with the decision, right? It's not like a, he doesn't just throw the Prime Directive away when it's inconvenient. Right. He wrestles with this, and he's trying to make the best decision to help these people. The and then he minimize. throws it away. And then, <laughs> I think at one point it's actually suggested to him that, oh, okay, they think you're a god. Go be a god and get whatever, get our people back, and we can just get out of here. And so many other shows would do that. Right. And he says, no, I'm, I won't give them a sign. I won't give them a That's sign. That's what makes Picard the first. <laughs> so, so, all right, what, what would you do to, that, that would be different? I mean, I feel like, like I understand why this wouldn't work in an hour of television. But it's like you try to find a way to sabotage the religion. Like if not, <laughs> like try to re- like try to re- like undo what you did, and I can see that turning into a whole other thing. Like then you just end up making it worse. Yeah, this is like sending in the bears to eat the the rats and the yeah yeah. yeah. You end up with yeah like right. yeah. But I just feel like he like going straight to well, let's give up give up the game. <laughs> it's like you're one run down. <laughs> like you can bring it back. Jesse with the rare sports analogy. <laughs> no, that's just me. It's, you don't mean the baseball. That's the that's one. one. Right. <laughs> I, I credit Cisco with that one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it just seems like it's a, it seems like I get he wrestles with it. But you go straight to just like, like like why not just like land some shuttlecraft and set up shop at this point. Yeah. And then it ends where they're like, oh, yeah, thank you for helping us through this. And maybe we'll join your federation one day. It's like, well, you, okay, so they've gotten over the God thing, but you still screwed up. Right. Their culture is now aware of all this stuff and is totally going to change direction anyway. Like, did you, like, did, like, the only way this, output, this end state is better than have not interfered at all is that they didn't kill Troy or Riker right. or whoever it was. <laughs> right. But you leave the society with this existential crisis now yeah. where they're like, oh, so we're just, we're way behind the game from the entire <laughs> most of the galaxy, apparently. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I just, I couldn't think of, and, it, and the episode doesn't present us with an elegant solution either. It's just, just what do you do? You inadvertently screwed up. Cat's out of the bag now, and so you might as well just let all the cats out at this point, because what are you going to do? So I'll grant you like that makes for good TV, but yeah, questionable decision on Picard's. I do feel like another episode later on the list it does address some of these problems. It's, it's ultimately, at least superficially, got a very similar premise, right? and uh, they deal with it in a much different way. Yes, and, and I think I know what episode you're talking about, and you'll see um, uh, the, the, the difference in the context is really what determined yeah. the and, well, uh, how it was. <laughs> anyway, what's number three on that list? It's, we're getting worse. Yeah. Number three, uh, back to the original series, we're talking about Patterns of Force, season two, episode 23, of 1968. Yeah. Hard. Nazi planet, guys. <laughs> Nazi planet. Gotta do a Nazi planet. Gotta do a Nazi planet. Hard to watch these days, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Given the current political climate. <laughs> a little bit. A little yeah. Bit. Yeah. Um, so, in short, uh, we're on planet Ecos, uh, and we're there to locate um, a Starfleet cultural observer. His name is John Gill. 
And Spock describes him as a former professor of this. He's a noted historian, is a brilliant history teacher, which very quickly becomes ironic when the <laughs> yeah. episode goes on. Kirk and Spock beam down after the Enterprise is attacked by um, some kind of a missile. And um, they find, when they get there, the cultural the culture is identical to Nazi Germany. With John Gill as their Fuhrer. <laughs> like right down to like the <laughs> right. ethnic plague of the other ethnic plague. Like right. the, the purge. Yeah. Right. Zay- right. Zazen- the Zeon. Zeon. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. right. Totally not a Zion thing. <laughs> I was going to say a little on the nose of that. But yeah. yeah. So this is, yeah. So there's a neighboring planet and the inhabitants of Zeon is uh, our, our persecuted people. There's a great scene right er- uh, a minute right early in the episode as they jump a couple of guards to steal their uniforms. And uh, they put on their uniforms to get in disguise. Spock turns to Kirk and <laughs> yeah. says, you should make a very convincing Nazi. And Kirk looks at the camera and pauses. Which I am certain, <laughs> I'm certain has to be a joke about William Shatner being Jewish, right? <laughs> it has to be. It has to be. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to go that far, but it's possible. It's, uh, I, I just want to say, before we get into the prime directive of it all. Yeah. I think it's a really good episode, and it's like it, it's it's an uncomfortable watch, but it's uncomfortable because of what's going on in the world, not because of anything in the episode. I think that is wrong. It's on the level you're describing, yeah. yeah. But the premise of the episode, like, forgive me for jumping to the end, no problem. like, the, so yeah, it was John Gill, but he did it because Nazi Germany was the the most efficient state in Earth, which it wasn't. It's right. a common misconception. Yeah. So he figured he would like teach them how to be Nazi Germany and just try to to not do the the the, the sadist part, right? Which is a really <laughs> hard thing to buy, right. Uh, right? But he's proven wrong, and and the you know. It would be one thing if it was like, where everything turned out great, and he was right, and sure, they've got swastikas everywhere, but sure, they sure are efficient. But that's not what happens. <laughs> well, but, right. but even the characters are like, why the f- would he think that? Right. What a terrible right. idea. Was, when <laughs> like, I, watching this episode, my initial reaction was, always oh, a brilliant historian, and you thought the Nazis were doing great. Dude, keep reading, man. <laughs> like, it gets yeah. worse. Yeah. Turn the page after 1937. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But to be fair, there that's there's like 300 more years distance or 200 more years distance. Anyway, several hundred years distance between 1937 and 2260, whatever that it is in Star Trek. In in 300 years, there have been a lot of different thoughts uh, for us in like... I don't know what happened 300 years ago. The landing of Columbus in in uh, right. North America. There's a lot of different views. So maybe this guy, brilliant scientist, has a little Nazi fetish that <laughs> might happen in 300 years. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's happening to some people now. Yes. Today, yes. and yes. that's why it's kind of. But creepy. not in yeah. like an ironic hipster way. That's <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So in terms of like maybe there are more severe prime directive violations. But in terms of what you're doing with the violating. Yeah. Saying, guys, 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 hang on, hang on. We're going to change your whole culture. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. Here, everyone stick your hand out. 
High five? I just, I found it really hard. Like, yeah, okay, we have yeah. to make the assumption that a lot of time has changed, but holy cow. Yeah, yeah. I, I This is on the list purely because of, like, the audacity of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so great. But, I mean, they do eventually find Gil. They find out that his deputy has been drugging him and has taken uh, the direction of the civilization to a more Hitler-y uh, path. Precisely hitler <laughs> Precisely hitler <laughs> path. And so they manage to revive him and, you know, do a quick detox where uh, he gives a speech, Gil gives a speech and broadcasts it to everybody and says, this is not the way, we've strayed from the path that I intended. And uh, then they kind of leave. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. Yeah. So the, I guess the, the solution they came up with is that, okay, so... We're going to let you keep doing the the fascist thing. Just don't do the persecuting part. <laughs> but good on you. We're going to go now. There's like <laughs> nothing stopping them from going back to that. Right. Precisely. Right. Yeah. So they just discover this planet. They tell them what they're doing is wrong. They don't really do anything about it. <laughs> and then they leave. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, it's not the Enterprise doing most of the Prime Directive violating in this Yeah, it's, it's Gil. And, and, he, and he, he pays for it in the end. He right. dies. But right. still, like, it's... At that point, is it your responsibility to... I guess cleaning it up, maybe, that's right. also a Prime Directive violation. It is. Yeah. is like, like, this is just a whole planet of Nazis now, I guess. That's yeah. just... Womp, and that's the confusing part about the Prime Directive, is that, okay, so if there is a screw-up like this, um, the you are allowed to violate the Prime Directive further to sort of course-correct... But how do you course correct here, man? I don't yeah. even know where do you start. So again, like this would come in like, actually, let's try Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lord of Light, Roger Zelzany, great book. Let's go on to number two. Number two, and I believe this is what Graham was referring to earlier. This is First Contact. We're back at TNG, the season four, episode fifteen, aired in nineteen ninety one. Not the movie. Not the movie. If we start Which... talking about the temporal prime director stuff in the movie, <laughs> we'll be here for a week. Yep. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Wouldn't necessarily be a bad episode, but right. we'll, yeah. <laughs> All right. So First Contact, where it's it's a similar situation uh, as Mintaka three. Where, um, but it's a much more advanced society. Now, this is a society that the Federation has been observing for a long time and has actually decided they're ready for first contact. Like, they're like, all the, the bits and pieces are there. They're on the verge of warp technology. These guys are ready for it. We're going to go and meet them now. To be to give you an idea of how advanced they are, mm-hmm. the at the start of the episode, you could almost be forgiven for thinking it was like a weird ER episode. I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> what the reason why I love this episode is because it's a little bit maybe on the nose, but it's a good stand-in for current day Earth, maybe a little yeah, bit. Well, at least 1991. <laughs> Earth. 1991 Earth. But yeah, this super interesting episode because it's a totally new context than than Mintaka 3. Opens with Riker being treated in a hospital on this alien planet, but he gets discovered because he gets injured. They're going through his physiology and going, there's some bits missing on this person or whatever he is. He's got more fingers than they do. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, there is this conversation happening with like the, the uh, powers that be on this planet, with the scientists going that, look, I'm ready to, uh, my research on warp technology is done, uh, 
we should get funding for this, invest in it, uh, and, you know, uh, really go at far in our space yeah, travel. take to the stars. Right, take to the stars. And there's some pushback from uh, from other politicians going like, no, the people are not ready for this, and you're going to screw up our way of life, um, and we don't know what's out there. Um, and this is the plan. This is a planet, of course, very much like Earth. It's just like, well, they're, they're, we're the only people we know, and we're the center of our universe. And, you know, if we find out that there's a very big, wide galaxy out there, I don't, I don't really want to know that. I don't know what's going to do that uh, to our civilization. The scientist who's on the verge of this technology gets beamed up to the Enterprise. Um, she gets visited by Troy and Picard. She gets beamed up and shown around. And she's super excited and says, okay... So, you have decided through all of your research that we are ready for first contact. Let's take you down to the, uh, the politicians, the chancellor on this planet, uh, and uh, introduce you. And they really, let's make this thing happen. I am on board, guys. Chancellor meets Picard. He's very impressed with them. He gives them some the Picard vineyard wine <laughs> and makes friends. Which I thought was a nice touch. It was a nice little very touch Very classy. There. <laughs> There's a really, really great line uh, at uh, the end of that conversation where the chancellor goes, This morning, I was the leader of the universe as I knew it. Now I'm just a voice in a chorus. I feel like that's got to be a reference to a real powerful speech or something. I don't know. It feels so eloquent. It's very powerfully done. (laughs) Yeah. But. Um, Yeah. But there is, meanwhile, uh, Riker is being tortured (laughs) in this hospital. They are trying to make efforts to get him back. They tell the scientists, look, uh, our first officer went missing on your planet. He was there as, um, you know, part of these missions where we've been studying you. Uh, We don't know where he went. Um, and she says, okay, you know, like, I'll, I'll help you try to find him. Uh, eventually, Riker gets used by the politician who was pushing against warp technology as, a, oh, they've been spying on us. Here's their spy. And there's this, all this violent pushback against that kind of uh, movement towards, towards going to the stars. And in the end, the Chancellor decides, you know what? We're not ready for this. Our planet is just not ready for first contact. Thank you very much, but I'm going to have to decline. It's also, uh, <laughs> I just want to go back a second, that wasn't the only time Riker got used in that episode. Oh, yes. yes. Does, uh, <laughs> There's some traditional Riker play yes. as well. Uh, he does get sexually harassed by Fraser's wife. I would argue sexually assaulted <laughs> by, yes, by that, wife. That's sexual assault, yeah. yeah because she always wanted creepy. to be with an alien. But... <laughs> I have the. I feel like that is the biggest violation of the Prime Directive that happens in that episode. Well, and that, that's what I wanted to get to. Like for being right. so high on your list, like they pretty they're pretty clear establishing like this is where the Prime Directive kind of gets overturned, right? Mm. And I guess at the end of the episode, we say, well, no, maybe this is another thing about the Prime Directive. It's not just about the technology. It also has to be about a certain like cultural or sociological right. maturity. Right. But I don't know if, like, Picard or the Federation violates the Prime Directive here. Well, it's sort of an inadvertent uh, uh, violation, again, because Riker gets discovered. So you have these common people without this sort of proper, proper protocol learning about this. Oh, my God, there's this alien spy thing. What's wrong with this guy? Uh, and it's creating all of this this confusion and all this like violent anger towards um, the possibility of, of, of warp technology. But it's... What I really liked about the episode is the, that you have the society that really, on paper, should be ready for this, but just on an emotional sort of cultural level, it just isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. I was really not satisfied with the solution, though. It's, it's very limited to the society where you have this one leader 
who can make the call and say that, no, you know what, we're not ready for this. It's check back in 100 years. Yeah. yeah. You know? But, like, if it doesn't seem very democratic <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, also, true. they've been studying these people for a while, so I'm sure Starfleet is sort of taking into account cultural indicators that they're mature enough to be able to handle this. this I mean, you'd think explosion so. But on the brain. Apparently, but... they got to this point and right. didn't realize how bad it was going to be. Right. But here's my big question for this episode, and I know this is kind of nitpicky. Why is Riker there at all? I think he was specifically. Um... Is it because he had a beard? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, they just vaguely mentioned that he was there on a observation mission. But why? But why would Riker was... be the one that would it's, get sent for it's, that? It's the same reason he leads all these away parties. Yeah. Everywhere. Look, I, I get it from a storytelling perspective. Right. They, they needs to be someone. Right. But from a logic standpoint, Riker of all people, they have to they bring the flagship of the fleet to this first contact mission that they're not even really supposed to be conducting. It's just Riker is going to go undercover and hang out with them for a few well, days. I mean, the flagship I kind of get. Like, that's, like, that should be all the Enterprise does, right? It's, it's seeking out new life and new civilizations. Like, But I feel like you, you send the flagship to, like, to do the first contact. You don't send it to have your first officer do the observation. Yeah. That seems like it should be a special whole yeah. other group that are Maybe trained for Maybe as a sociologist it. like Lindstrom. Yeah, yeah. he think, did a great job. I think the plan really was that, I think what they don't say in the episode, I'm kind of filling in blanks here, I think the plan originally was for uh, Riker to go meet with the scientists oh. and make that initial contact instead of Picard and Troy just beaming themselves into and her response, the scientist's response was very measured. I would have fainted, <laughs> probably. But I think that was probably That's the fair. plan. Yeah, it's kind of like Riker like, ah, was going to yeah. go. All right, Riker, like, come on, kid, this is your big chance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, I will allow that. <laughs> I will allow that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great episode. Sad kind of ending, and I just wish that there was. I kind of wanted for this planet to get pushed. And be like, no, you know what? You can, you'll figure it out. Just just get out there. It's okay. You can get past this sort of... Well, that would be the Kirk response, right? right? He would kill the Prime yeah. Minister. <laughs> <laughs> and he would leave Edson Ricky behind to teach them. <laughs> but, but as far as Prime Directive violations go, there's, there's the accidental one. Mm-hmm. But then Riker... Has carnal relations with BB Newirth. I mean, it's implied. It's never made a hundred percent explicit. Pretty clear. It's pretty clear. And it's like she walks out of that room with a pretty big smile. She's, on her face, she's so pretty pleased. I mean, and she's very clear at what she's looking for. Yeah, but but. We know that with humanoid species, there's yeah. interbreeding that can happen. I mean, we've got Spock, we get Bolana Torres, there's all plenty of that stuff happening. What happens if she gives birth to some weird alien lady, right. uh, Riker <laughs> hybrid baby? Yeah. Half Riker, half creepy. Half Riker, there's, half... Like, like, they they, <laughs> they address the idea that, oh, well, some people have seen Riker and they're like, oh, well, they'll just be rumors and they'll fade away. Right. You can't was fade a... away a weird baby. He was right. a weather balloon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> In any case, half Riker baby, one way or the other, I'm sure there's a novel that follows up on it. Right. For our purposes, let's move on then. What's the number one Prime Directive violation? Number one is two episodes. It is Redemption Part 1 and 2. So this is uh, TNG Season 4, Episode 26, and Season 5, Episode 1, aired 1991. Now, this to me... I I mean, I gotta hear your side of it first. (laughs) All right, all right. 
Because it comes up specifically, like, one of the cliffhanger in this episode is caused by, like, we can't violate the Prime Directive. Right. That's, that's what we have to do. Right. So you got to tell me how this... Okay. All okay. Right. What's the synopsis? Okay, the synopsis, it's a little convoluted, so I'm going to try to keep it short, is Picard is the arbiter of succession, um, and he's there, basically, uh, to help with the installation of Gowron as a leader of the Klingon High Council. Um, for complicated for reasons complicated that happened reasons in a previous and, episode. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Um... House Duras will challenge the succession, um, and this may lead to civil war. Now, this is the first gray area of the episode, I felt. Worf wants to um, get his brother uh, to and his fleet of ships to back Gowron so that their family name can be restored to honor. And he wants to do this. Uh, he wants to take sort of leave to do this. And he is allowed despite remaining a Starfleet officer, to go and do this with his brother to go To go and raise a fleet of warships. Right. Okay, and fair to enough. to participate in this internal conflict as a Starfleet officer at this point. Anyway, Garon does get in, uh, installed um, with help from Warp's brother. Um, and we learn of an impending civil war uh, because um, House Duras is being backed, as we find out at the end of this episode, by the Romulans, and they're going to uh, attack... Uh, and try to install their, um, I guess, the House Duras. Yeah, uh, Toral. Toral, yeah. Uh, I guess there's their, their brother's kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't so worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it gets complicated. So blah, it blah, 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 Klingon Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. And then you, the, the big reveal at the end of the first episode uh, is that um, the Romulan involved is Tasha Yar's Romulan half-baby. Yeah. At the end of the episode, you're just like, this is Tasha Yar cosplaying as a Romulan. Right. But then you find out in the next episode that it's a weird time travel kid. Right. So that's the second problem I have, is that the reason why we're in this situation is back, going back a little bit to yesterday's Enterprise, another two-part episode. Nope. One part. Was it one part? I think it's just one part. Is it just? Okay. I apologize. One part episode. Where Tasha Yar goes back 24 years to help a, uh, well, goes back to a ship that exists 24 years in the past, kind of, um, to uh, assist. And that ship gets attacked by Romulans, she gets captured, and then she has this baby. And this baby is the one who is complicating the situation right now. There was a temporal prime directive violation <laughs> that got the Enterprise in the situation in the first place, where Tasha Yar should not have been allowed to go back. Now, I would argue that in the universe where that happened, that there, it didn't seem like there was a temporal prime directive right. to violate. Right. Like, we, we don't know enough about it to say that for sure, but right. it seems like it, it, that would be a low priority for them to come right. up with a temporal prime directive. But it is and the reason why I didn't want to get into too much about the temporal prime directive is that because the, if if you're in a situation where that's even a concern, that's not the concern. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? that's that's fair. So, yeah. But I yeah, do see what you're. Sailed. I do see what you're saying. Like, don't mess with the past. Right. That's like, yeah. like, has nobody on the Enterprise watched movies? Right. <laughs> but and I, I feel like we're going to give the temporal thing a buy. Yes, I'm going okay. to give that one a pass. But but now. The next episode, the opening of season five, is when we get the conversation where Picard is pitching this to Starfleet, where he is convinced that, well, he knows that the Romulans are trying to see an opportunity to gain advantage over the Federation by messing up their alliance with the Klingons. And they are um, funding their bankrolling and uh, giving supplies and ships to House Duras to... You know, uh, get involved in this this civil war that's happening right now. The solution that Picard comes up with is that 
He will be in charge of a fleet of ships that will create a blockade between the Klingon and Romulan borders to keep from any uh, supplies to go through. Now, he, in this lecture, he makes it very, very clear what their actual intention is. The admiral that he's speaking to says, no, this is a, this is a Klingon internal conflict. We can't get involved. The civil war, this is none of our business. Yeah. And he says, well, no, this is going to end our alliance if House Duras wins. We have to do something so that House Duras does not win. Well, I think, I think his <laughs> point, I think his point is that he wants to stop the Romulans from interfering right. in the same way that the Federation is, is being, shouldn't interfere. Right. Right. But Which the Federation still... would absolutely benefit right. from the Romulans. And that is very yeah. much in their mind when they come up with this plan. Yeah. Because, fine, what they're arguing is that, okay, we don't want the Romulans to tip the balance of power in this situation to, uh, to, uh, so that the House Duras has an advantage. But... The Federation getting involved the way that it is tips it the other way pretty decisively, and the Federation benefits and gets to keep a very important ally. I have to say, in watching it at the time, it felt when that plan was put in place, mm-hmm. it sounded like Duras had the advantage even without the the Romulan support. But by the end of the episode, Gowron suddenly has a ton of extra support, and they 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 win. Almost immediately. <sighs> yeah. Just... But I mean, it's like, it's the, the <laughs> dangers, it's the trick of having a 40 minute episodic right. television show where you gotta wrap this stuff up. Right. Because so it's me, such a good episode. I don't want it. It's such a fabulous episode. <laughs> but, and I'm not saying that it's not totally badass what they do. I'm not saying I don't love it because I do. It's a great sort of cheeky solution. Like, we're just gonna stand on the border. We're just gonna not get in the middle of this conflict by literally getting in the middle of this conflict. <laughs> um, but the intention is to have a particular party win. And the uh, and Starfleet has a vested interest in who wins in this conflict and does something that makes that result certain. That's a prime directive violation. <laughs> Because, hmm. like, he pitches it that because he's not messing with any Klingons, so he's not messing with the Klingon civil war. Mm-hmm. But oh, he by, is. But he is. And by <laughs> by revealing that the Romulans are involved, it it makes people who were otherwise loyal to Duras defect to Gowron. Right. right. So I was coming. I was coming uh, into this really ready to fight you on this one. <laughs> yeah. But that's a like looking at it from that perspective is that's a very good point. But I mean. Uh, the flip side of it is there's a part where where uh, Gowron's ship is under attack and the Enterprise is right there and mm-hmm. could jump in and help. And Worf, even to add higher stakes to it, Worf is on board the ship that's under attack. The Bortos. The, the Bortos. Mm-hmm. And they're like, should we, Captain, should we go help? And, and he's like, oh, I don't think right. so. And then they're like, but Worf's on the ship. And he's like, nah, let's get out of right. here, guys. But and I, that's, that's like such a hard scene to is, watch, but that's so perfectly Picard because exactly. it's like he's doing the right thing. That's such but he's an excellent episode because he does struggle with it and has yeah. to come up with this like sort of a loophole where like you know what I don't want Worf to die, <laughs> yeah. so, but we got and we don't want this disastrous thing to happen. So it's you know it's a, it's a concept that's come up a few times, and and I love that in this two part episode Picard really has to. There's real stakes on both sides. For him, and you really see him struggle with it, and that's why he needs to come up with this just shy of a violation, but totally still a violation <laughs> solution, um, which is really creative and it's amazing, and I love it. But 
come on, guys. They yeah. <laughs> knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And why. No, you're right. That's... <laughs> Okay, yeah, no, I was <laughs> I was convinced by the card, but you saw through it. No, I, I'm that's, sorry. Uh, well, the, does it make the episode any less cool? No, Not it's at all. Awesome. If it's, anything, it's even better. But yeah, raises some interesting questions. But the important thing this episode reminds us of is that through all of these series, as you see Starfleet as this egalitarian, we're scientists who are just here to spread the good word and the best way of life to everyone. <laughs> This is a heavily armed militaristic <laughs> empire <laughs> with political interests, and it is willing, perfectly willing, to like bend its morals that are normally beyond reproach to meet those political interests, like they do in this episode. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, You've made your case, Kelsey. You have. Was, <laughs> I, I, Ouch. I have to say, Picard... Is the best at, at justifying the at getting away with it. Getting, <laughs> he is. He is though because he. It's it's never an easy decision with him. Right. Whereas I find with Kirk in particular and Janeway as well, yeah. it feels like any shift in the wind, and they're like, "Well, I guess we'll violate the Prime Directive." Right. Whereas <laughs> Picard is willing to let Worf die, yeah. like his bro who he just sent off to. He he helped get his honor back. He he's there right. through the slime with Worf and he was willing to let him die to, to preserve the, the prime directive. Exactly. It was Worf's Chadich. Right. It was Worf's Chadich. And it is a wonderful episode for all of those reasons. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that horribly depressing note, I, I, no, I, I, that was awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back Thank and you for ruining me. it a little for me. <laughs> Wait, thanks for coming on the show. Additional thanks while we're at it. Uh, special thanks to Stella Simeonova, our webmaster. And special thanks to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief. Uh, be sure to check him out. He's at Jamie Reum Official on YouTube. That's R-E-A-U-M-E. And check out his podcast, Originals and Covers and Beyond. Man, more music stuff there than Star Trek. We're getting pretty heavy into the Star Trek. And I know that tends to provoke a lot of responses. So if you have anything, anything to help me fight back against Aisha <laughs> on this one... I'd love the ammunition. Uh, there's all kinds of ways you can get a hold of us. You can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. You can go to our website at geektop5.com and leave a comment there. You can go to facebook.com slash geektop5 and contact us on there. You can also go see us on Twitter at, uh, at geektop5. You can also leave a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And we'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're particularly interested in those reviews, by the way. So if you've got nothing to do, you want to pop by iTunes and drop off some five stars. As many stars as you like, I think five is appropriate. But just the stars and the review, it'd be good to see. It helps us out in a lot of different ways and might come around to help you, too. So, in the meantime, that was Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again in just a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>